that and this need to be turned on are you gets on already you okay might be a little better if you could dim the lights up front here yeah uh, let's make sure we get this thing going here okay we got that good well thank you for having me here tonight uh, for Jesus spoken here a few times before um, you know, it's interesting when I was first asked to speak in January, of course, I had to warn the Civil War Roundtable. If the Chicago Bears are still in the playoff hunt by January, I couldn't make it to speak. Um, they assured me that that wouldn't probably happen, and sure enough, it didn't. So that's why I'm here tonight. Uh, just enough luck for another killing. Battle of Ezra Church in the Atlanta campaign. Uh, July 28th. 1864. General William T. Sherman hears the thunder of massed rifle fire coming from the front of the army. He knows the Confederates are attacking. This is the third Confederate attack within eight days. They're attacking his one-time command, General Oliver O. Howard's Army of Tennessee. And unlike many generals, Sherman welcomed being attacked. He barked out in his rapid, staccato, peculiar way, quote, Good, this is fine. This is just what I wanted, just what I wanted. Tell Howard to invite them to attack. It will save us trouble, save us trouble. They'll only beat their brains out, beat their brains out. A nearby staff officer recalled how Sherman actually was very gay about the fact that he was being attacked. And well should Sherman have seemed gay. At this stage of the war, who on the Confederate side would be foolish enough to make a frontal attack against a much larger Union army? <laughs> the Battle of Ezra Church was fought July 28, 1864, just west of Atlanta. It was the third in a series of unsuccessful attacks by John Bell Hood's Confederate Army of Tennessee against Sherman's army group. The presentation is based on an essay I wrote for a book called Confederate Generals in the Western Theater, which Larry Hewitt has something to do with. Uh, my essay was called uh, Stephen D. Lee in the Battle of at Ezra Church. And like perhaps no other battle in the war, the Battle of Ezra Church was dominated by the personalities of the commanders. And like no other battle in the war, the two commanders had only been commanding the units for less than three days. On the Union side, the death of General James B. McPherson, the commander of the Army of the Tennessee, at the Battle of Atlanta on July 22nd, threw open a question as who is going to command the Army of Tennessee. The ranking corps commander, Black Jack Logan, had taken over the Army of the Tennessee during the battle, <coughs> rallied and inspired the troops to victory, and he expected to be given permanent command of the Army of Tennessee. He was, in fact, the soldier's favorite. But Sherman had other candidates in mind. And the question is, who should Sherman promote? Now, Logan was the soldier's favorite, great battle commander. But he was a politician, and an Illinois politician at that. Not good. Sherman, and pre-war Democrat, yes. Uh, Sherman did not trust politicians, as we know. The senior corps commander in the Army was Joe Hooker. You remember him from the Chancellorsville campaign? <laughs> well, he'd been sent out west. He was not only the senior corps commander, but he had actually done a good job commanding the corps, a corps during the Atlanta campaign. Competent soldier, but he was feared as a political intriguer. They didn't trust him. Not on the battlefield, but they didn't trust him to undermine his superior officers. Then you had the third choice, Oliver O. Howard. You remember him also from Chancellorsville. You remember what happened in Chancellorsville? His corps got flanked and crushed. So what happened? He kept on in corps command at Gettysburg, and what happened? 
his court command was flanked and crushed. <laughs> now, Hook, now, Howard was the Christian soldier, very reliable human being, but he was certainly the least competent battle commander of the three. So, I ask you, who would you promote of these three? <laughs> I hear a lot, I hear that turns out Oliver O. Howard. <laughs> now, that's not Jerry Allen, by the way. Uh, I just want to make that clear. Um, George Tom Howard and Hooker were corps commanders under Thomas's Army of the Cumberland. They weren't even in the Army of Tennessee, of the Tennessee. And uh, Thomas says you can't do any better than put Howard in command. He just didn't trust Hooker. Logan would have seen to have been the logical choice, not an intriguer and a very competent battle commander, but Sherman evidently, according to more modern historians, had some reasons to doubt Logan's fitness for the job because he is going to take the Army of Tennessee and do some complicated maneuvers around Atlanta, one of which will lead to the Battle of Ezra Church. And he, he said that while Logan was a great battle commander, he didn't have the technical West Point training to be able to handle those kind of intricate maneuvers and intricate logistical questions that he'd faced during the, during the Battle of Ezra Church. So he chose Howard. And of course, since Hooker outranked Howard, Hooker resigned his command, sort of uh, confirming how untrustworthy he was. And believe me, nobody in the Army regretted Hooker leaving Corps Command, except maybe his soldiers. Well, on the Confederate side, uh, in July of 1864, John Bell Hood, who was actually Howard's classmate at West Point, had been elevated from a Corps Command to command the Army of Tennessee, the Confederate Army defending Atlanta. He had superseded Joe Johnston, who was the soldier's favorite. But Johnston wasn't President Davis's favorite. Davis made it clear that Johnston was being too much on the defensive and he wanted a more aggressive policy to confront, attack, and defeat Sherman's army. Now, the crippled Hood had previously commanded a corps in this army. And, of course, the fact that he's elevated to army command means that his corps needs a new commander. Who should Hood promote? Well, for the first two years in the war, John Bell Hood had served under Robert E. Lee in Virginia, and of course been a very good brigade and division commander. But he'd been with the Army of Tennessee less than a year. However, in that short time, he concluded that none of his three division commanders were worthy of promotion. Now, the other of the Army's senior division commanders, the two seniors, were Pat Claiborne and Ben Frank Cheatham. Of course, you know Pat Claiborne. He had probably had the best record of any divisional commander in the Confederate Army. But Claiborne had problems. He was considered too close to his mentor, Corps Commander William J. Hardy, who was Hood's rival for command and who Hood did not trust. Plus, Claiborne had advocated, as you know, the uh, emancipation of slaves and their enlistment into the Confederate Army. So he was persona non grata. Uh, ben Frank Cheatham was a very hard-drinking, hard-fighting Tennessean. He was sort of the um, alcoholic Tennessee equivalent of John Bell Hood. Again, a great leader of combat troops, but not a professional soldier either. So instead of promoting the two ranking one of the two ranking divisional commanders in the Army, Hood went outside the Army completely to newly minted Major General Stephen Dill Lee, the commander of the Department of the Mississippi. Now, Stephen Dill Lee was one of those rare individuals that nobody ever seems to have said a bad word about as a human being. General Dorsey Pender found him, quote, the pink of, the pink of honor in morals above the ordinary, in sobriety unquestionable, and in goodness of heart unequaled. 
His West Point classmate, General Porter Alexander, thought Lee, quote, a splendid, handsome six-footer, universally popular, a natural-born soldier, an excellent officer. A distant cousin of Robert E. Lee, Stephen D. Lee was born in South Carolina in 1833, graduated from West Point in 1864. The first couple years of the war, he led a regiment and then a brigade in Virginia and then in Mississippi. Won the plaudits of his superior officers wherever he went. In 1864, President Davis promoted him to Major General and assigned him to command the Department of Alabama and Mississippi. Lee performed energetically that summer of 1864 and on the whole successfully in defending Mississippi against Union cavalry and infantry raids. Long after the war, President Davis proclaimed the youthful Lee, quote, one of the best all-around soldiers the war produced. And Lee ended his life with the Lost Cause's highest honor. He was made President of the United Confederate Veterans. With all that praise, though, come some questions. Now, Lee was recently promoted to Major General, and he was junior to both Claiborne and Cheatham. Lee had never led an infantry division, let alone an infantry corps, at any time. Lee was unfamiliar with the Army of Tennessee, he was unfamiliar with its officers, he was unfamiliar with his men, and he was unfamiliar with the area around Atlanta. In the one battle that he'd actually commanded in, the Battle of Tupelo in the middle of 1864, um, it was a Confederate fiasco. He led disjointed attacks against an entrenched superior Union army, and Lee's troops were bloodily repulsed. In Lee's favor, though, was first his availability. They could replace him as department commander pretty easily. Secondly, Lee's known aggressiveness. He proved that at Tupelo with his attacks. And Lee fit into John Bell Hood's conception of warfare, of aggressive warfare, more than any of these other candidates. Third factor was that Lee, that Lee and Hood were friends from in, back in Virginia. They knew each other. And fourth, that Lee was widely believed, if inaccurately believed, to actually have won the Battle of Tupelo not to have lost it. The southern newspapers made him out to be the victor. Yeah, newspapers were unreliable back then too. <laughs> I won't say fake news, no. Uh, I'd add another act, idea that Hood was very unsure of his tenure of command and he probably was pretty comfortable. The corps commander was basically his choice, his creature, and so junior that he wouldn't threaten Hood's command of the army. Now the appointment of Lee to the Corps command did not give the men of the army universal satisfaction. One private grumbled that Lee, quote, a newcomer among us, was being promoted above his deserts, especially when paced over such tried and known quantities as Claiborne and Cheatham. Now, starting on the 27th, Sherman initiates a plan with the Army of Tennessee. Each commander in this battle will choose their newest general to lead the movements that lead up to this battle. Sherman or the Army of Tennessee was about where it had been during the Battle of Atlanta, on the east side of Atlanta. Sherman orders Howard to take the Army of Tennessee completely around the rear of Sherman's army, which is investing Atlanta from the north and from the uh, east, around, extend to the west of Atlanta and try and cut the railroad lines leading into Atlanta from the west. Now, of course, this movement could not be completely concealed from the Confederates. On the 27th, Hood learned of this movement and ordered Lee to move two of the divisions of his corps, Browns and Clayton's, swiftly and secretly to the rear, where they were to await further developments. That night, Hood, from his headquarters in Atlanta, uh, unfolded his plans to his corps commanders. Lee was to take his two divisions out west of Atlanta, 
north of the Lick Skillet Road, which was the main road leading into Atlanta from the west. He was to occupy a position just north of that road on a ridge that included a place called Ezra Church, halt the Union advance, avoid a general engagement if possible on the 28th, and not to attack unless he saw a decided opening. The road secure, Stuart was to follow along the same road with two of his divisions, and perhaps more, go around behind Lee's Corps, and on the 29th, move west, launch a flank attack against the Unions who are supposedly going to be facing Lee's two divisions. The plan was, in essence, a mirror image of the Hood's plan for the Battle of Atlanta six days earlier, in which at the Battle of Atlanta, Hood tried to outflank the Union left. Now he's trying to outflank the Union right. Unlike the Battle of Atlanta, though, Hardy, who Hood thought less aggressive, was not going to lead the decisive flank attack. He was going to use his younger generals, Lee and A.P. Stewart, to launch that decisive flank attack. And in, Hood, in Hood's mind, it was a great plan. He was giving them plenty of time to maneuver into position to launch this flank attack. Now Hood, of course, had very sound military reasons for trying to stop Sherman's creep west of Atlanta, save the railroads, and confined uh, Sherman's advance. Also, if Lee and Stewart could crush the Army of Tennessee, that would crush one-third of Sherman's army and give the Confederate soldiers and the Confederacy a morale boost from a much-needed victory. Hood believed that victory was possible only by assuming the offensive. As Hood told his troops in a general order issued two days earlier, quote, Soldiers, experience has proved to you that safety in, in time of battle consists of getting into close quarters with your enemy. Now, the soldiers themselves might not have agreed with Hood's tactical assessment. <laughs> it had, I think, become very clear that true safety lay in staying behind your breastworks and shooting down the enemy when they tried to move into close quarters against you. But beyond Hood's rather outdated tactical ideas, Hood's plan had problems. One, the plan simply assumed that Lee would beat the Union Army to the Ezra Church Ridge, even though the Federals had a day's head start. Two, there was no contingency plan if the Federals got to that ridge first. Three, the plan blithely assumed that the Federals would just supinely line up parallel to Lee, ignore their flank guard, wait 24 hours, and then not notice the flank attack. <laughs> And four, I'm going to be talking about this some later, the plan depended on close cooperation between three different commanders. Lee and his corps, Stewart and his corps, and cavalry commander in the area, William H. Jackson. No one officer was an overall charge for the Confederates. In short, the seemingly simple plan was in fact not so simple and considerably more complex. Contrast the command and control of the two armies. On the Union side, Howard is in sole command of the Union movement. Whereas the Confederate command is split between Lee and Stuart with no one overall commander. Hood neither takes charge of the Confederate movement, nor puts a subordinate in charge, nor provides the needed coordination. On the Union side, as we'll see in con contrast, Sherman is riding with Howard when the firing starts. He points out where Howard was to form. He's immediately available to order up reinforcements. In other words, he's exactly where he should be. But as we'll see during this battle, Hood never leaves his headquarters in Atlanta. Now this map shows uh, sort of graphically the mo proposed movements to Ezra Church. You can see Howard's troops are being pulled all the way around, marching like a semicircle around Atlanta. And Stuart and Lee's Confederate response is to uh, stop them here and hopefully try and flank them. 
and crush Howard's advance. Now, Howard moves cautiously, but inexorably southward. Now, Lee had marched into Atlanta holding his troops in readiness to be ordered out to protect the Wickskillet Road. But while the Yankees were up at dawn and driving south and toward the Ezra Church area, Lee's troops were held in Atlanta. An early start would have brought them to seize Edward and hold Ezra Church before the Yankees got there. But they waited at least three hours too long to move out. Now, the suspicion is that Hood ordered Lee to stay in Atlanta because he was afraid that Sherman would attack Atlanta from the north. The result was, on a very hot day, Lee was suddenly ordered out toward the Ezra Church area. And he had to double-quick his men in broiling sun, a broiling Georgia sun, on a hot July day. They didn't have the water to drink. They were exhausted. And this exhaustion contributed to the Confederates' feeble attack that day. Uh, this is a um, drawing from Harper's Weekly uh, depicting Ezra Church itself and the area around it. I will say that the terrain in 1864 was very heavily wooded. A lot of up and down little ridges and everything. Uh, they cleaned it up for the newspapers. Looks a lot more open than it was. This is an overlay of uh, the movements of the battle and the lines on a modern road map. You'll see that a lot of the battlefield re resides in what is now Westview Cemetery. Uh, one of the two major Atlanta cemeteries. The battlefield today lies totally within the Atlanta city limits. Other than that cemetery and a park, it's mostly suburban housing developments. The historic battlefield has been so altered by the developments that it's virtually unrecognizable. Ezra Church itself was destroyed by Union troops not three weeks after the battle. Now the Civil War Trust and other preservation groups have recognized that this battlefield just cannot be saved. There's not, just, just not, nothing left. And if you visit the area, you'll just basically find scattered markers like the ones you see here, some of them in the wrong place. But that's all we got for the battle. Um, on the Union side, the day had unfolded pretty much as Sherman and Howard had planned. At daybreak, Howard was extending his corps gradually southward. Logan was the most southward corps of the three. Uh, they're basically driving back Union uh, Confederate cavalry skirmishers through this very wooded terrain. Now, Hood was known to Howard personally from their West Point days. Howard was afraid of being attacked at any moment. He knew Hood. And he acted very cautiously. He extended his line one division at a time, always guarding his flanks, always making sure they were prepared for some sudden attack. Now, Sherman was with him, and he didn't like the Howard's slowness and caution, but he didn't try and interfere with the tactical arrangements. Sherman was sort of a hands-off guy when it came to battle. He let his subordinates do what they thought was best. But by 11 o'clock, Howard had positioned his three corps along a ridge line parallel the Atlanta fortifications would be over here, the Confederate ones, ridge line here, and then bending the line back as a flank guard along a ri slight ridge line here, centered around Ezra Church. Um, as was customary, this troop started to fell trees to provide them a little cover. At this time of the war, the troops had learned the values of fort field fortifications. One estimate, they could dig in and provide some sort of cover within 15 minutes of stopping. Which made it, in fact, virtually impossible for any attacking force to surprise them without them having at least some sort of foxholes or entrenchments or rail lines, rail fence lines built up. 
Although the thick woods prevented Howard's artillery from deploying and being able to see anything to shoot at, Howard was very satisfied with this position. Now on the Confederate side, uh, Lee's lead division, or John C. Brown, coming up from Atlanta on the Lick Skillet Road through like this. They learned from the cavalry pickets out there that the Union skirmishers were getting very close to the Lick Skillet Road, which Lee was supposed to safeguard. Curiously, Lee reported in his Alpha Battle report that the Union skirmishers actually were on the road. It's probably not true. What had happened was they were close enough to interdict it with rifle fire, literally within a couple hundred yards of the road. Uh, Lee had to make an instant decision what to do. He was told by the cavalry that it was just Union skirmishers in front of him. Lee jumped to the conclusion that Howard's advance body had just arrived, were few in number, and hadn't had time to dig any entrenchments. And in short, the quick frontal attack could not just push back the skirmishes he could see, but perhaps route the Union advance. Of Lee's three conclusions, only the third was even remotely true. But with this incomplete information, Lee ordered Brown to attack immediately. Uh, Brown deployed his four brigades, three in line and one in reserve. Manigault's line in reserve. Lee's other division under Henry D. Clayton was just coming up and starting to form about here on Lee's right. But Lee did not wait for Clayton's division to form up completely. He launched Brown immediately. The first attack. Thick woods dominated the terrain under which the Confederates attacked, making con command and control even more difficult than usual. Brown reported that the woods were, quote, so dense that the Confederates didn't discover the Union main line until they literally stumbled across them. Private Philip Stevenson noted that, quote, the deep thickets and woods and hollows and ravines over which they had to attack, well, the men stopped up, stepped out cheerfully, hoping to surprise the enemy on a march, but instead the surprise was to us. Suddenly, as from the ground, a long, bristling line of steel arose, and from it a withering sheet of fire poured upon us. Though taken completely by surprise, our men rallied from the unexpected shock and pressed forward to the works. Gallant charges were made. Our men almost reached them, almost reached the works, almost reached the verge's victory, but it was useless. The enemy's resources were apparently endless. The fight became one-sided and dwindled away to humiliating failure. The only near success was on the Confederate extreme left, where they made a little progress against the extreme Union right, but Howard and Logan brought up reserves and restored the Union flank there. To illustrate the fierceness of the attack, one of Brown's brigades had four commanders shot down during the attack, one after the other. Another brigade commander, Jacob Brantley, blamed the repulls on, quote, the extreme heat, the scarcity of water, and the hurried manner in, in which we entered the engagement, which caused a great many men to fall out and afterwards to strangle. Brown had to fall back to buy the rope to about right by the road, by a little ridge just north of the road. Meanwhile, Clayton had formed his divisions up, and after Brown was repulsed, Clayton was ordered in too. It fared no better. On the left, Gibson's Louisiana Brigade was accidentally ordered into an attack before the rest of the division was. Lee had bypassed Clayton, the division commander, and ordered the brigade in directly. There was a huge lack of coordination on the Confederate side, even on the divisional level. They struck the main Union line and suffered severely. They were subjected to a vicious crossfire. Gibson sent out his Louisians. They tried to work to the left to find an open spot in the Union line, but they couldn't. As a mournful Gibson later reported, quote, the brigade fought with much energy and obstinacy, but failed to dislodge the enemy enemy. 
Now, Gibson reported this fact to Division Commander Clayton, who ordered up an Alabama brigade for support. They were the ones who attacked around where near Ezra Church would be. That's the more rightmost attack. They were similarly unsuccessful. Clayton's men withdrew about 400 yards and reformed into a ravine. The third attack, confronted with failure, not surprising because Lee had only launched a disjointed attack with five of his brigades against an entire Union Corps, Lee determined to try again using Arthur Manigault's brigade. General Manigault reported about 1230 he was ordered to attack and hold that ridge where the main Union line was. In his memoirs, Manigault related that Br Division Commander Brown and Lee told him that he'd have no trouble taking the ridge. That Sharp's brigade, which in advance of him, had already gone there with no trouble. Manigault's men moved forward through the underbrush. The men mounted the ridge slope and advancing without flank support met a heavy flank fire. The Union forces, seeing only a lone brigade attacking, sallied forth and counterattacked, sending Manigault's brigade hurrying back down the slope. A second charge met with no better success. Manigault related his men got within 15 to 20 yards of the works. Under the severity of the fire, they could not go further. Again rallied, Brown ordered Manigault to go in a third time. To Manigault, this smacked a madness. To order a brigade reduced to approximately 700 men to take a misposition they had twice failed to take when they were at full strength and fresh. The worried General Manigault galloped to Brown and protested the order, saying it would take at least two lines, not just his one thin brigade, to have a chance of taking the ridge. Brown explained that the order was not of his doing, that he was just relating Lee's orders, and that Lee was very insistent about it. Well, Manigault's men started into a third try on the slope. They made it about halfway when General Brown galloped up to Manigault and said, I'm going to take the responsibility for countermanding Lee's order and order you not to make that attack. Now, Brown's report of the battle uh, basically says that Manigault's men acted very badly, that they didn't attack with sufficient vigor. However, Brown also said the enemy was there in overwhelming numbers, so maybe that had something to do with it. Well, about this time, A.P. Stewart's Corps was coming up, and its lead division under Walthall uh, was again coming up the Lick Skillet Road, just like the other ones had. And it forms in front of the remnants of Lee's two divisions there. Remember, they had not been, they had, the original plan was not to have them attack at all. For Lee, it was for Lee to occupy this ridge and then for Stuart to go around here and attack the next day. At Lee's request, though, Stuart ordered Walthall to form up right where you see it in the map on Lee's left, along the ground that Brown's division repulsed it, with his 2nd Division, Loring, still coming up and still forming. And once again, the Confederate commanders were not going to launch a coordinated attack. Lee's report, written long after the battle in 1865, reflected his overconfidence or his misappreciation of the situation. He asserted that he still believed that the enemy would have yielded before a vigorous attack. How he could have confidence that the third division attack would be successful when the first two had been so bloodily repulsed is sort of questionable. In retrospect, this looks a lot like Lee's management of the Battle of Tupelo, where he'd heard of one division at a time, never coordinated his attack, and all the attacks were bloodily repulsed. It also resembled the Battle of Atlanta six days earlier, where Confederates would try to make a flank attack instead made a direct frontal assault against a refused Union line. Uh, General Manigault, now in the rear, witnessed Walthall's attack with ill-disguised interest. Curious to see if a three-brigade assault could succeed where his one-brigade assault couldn't. Quote, the attacking force moved forward in a style much to be admired. 
regardless of the severe fire which greeted them from the moment they swept they would sweep everything before them but the attack fared no better than the previous attacks Walthall's troops in fact suffered the highest percentage losses of any Confederate attack that day now there's an old military maxim which basically says don't reinforce failure which is another way of saying if you attack a point and it's unsuccessful try attacking at another point obviously Lee Stephen D Lee violated this maxim several times during this battle now Walthall his division wrecked informed Lee of the failure um, in order to hold this position so Lori could come up and deploy and basically protect the routed troops. As this was taking place, both Loring and Stewart were shot off their horses. So they've lost a division commander and a corps commander. Now, all this time on the Union side, General Howard was very content to fight and to win a defensive battle. He felt no frontal attack could break his lines even though the men were best partially covered with rails and protected only when they kneeled down or lied down. He had ample reserves which he ordered up to relieve the front drawing troops, including some armed with Spencer rifles, you know, the repeating rifles. The Union troops were, had fired so fast, their rifle barrels were so hot that when they tried to pour powder down the barrels, the powder exploded from the heat. The savagery of the battle appalled those engaged in it. The battle was, in the words of a Union officer, one that, quote, for severity is unsurpassed by any of the campaign. The Confederate attacks belied Union General Jacob Cox's post-war guess that Hood's troops were, quote, losing their stomach for attacking. A horrified Sergeant Eugene McWayne of the 127th Illinois described how the rebels had been caught in the open and slaughtered. Quote, they laid in line of battle behind a chestnut rail fence. Dead as stones, our balls passing through the rails as if they were nothing more than paper. Major James Connolly, Union Staff Officer, called the battle perfect murder. We slaughter them by the thousand, but Hood continues to hurl his broken leading battalions against her immovable lines with all the fury of a maniac. Reason seems dethroned. This is the situation at the end of the day. Uh, Lee decides to uh, call out the attacks and assume a defensive. Now while Lee had been trying to coordinate these Confederate attacks, Hood remained at Army headquarters in Atlanta. He issued a barrage of orders, some helpful, some not, all of them out of date. It appears that Hood's orders took over two hours to reach the battlefront, and that's only four miles away. I mean, in theory, it should have been a 15-minute ride. But they were so delayed, it's almost like a person was walking out there at slow speed to deliver the orders. Hood never saw the battlefield. And of course, this raises questions about Hood's health. Now, you know the story. He was badly wounded at um, Gettysburg, immobile arm, lost a leg at Chickamauga. Now, we've heard all sorts of stories about how his mind might have been impaired by taking opium or some other pain-killing drugs. Well, there is no evidence, no credible evidence, that his mind or mind faculties were impaired by taking painkilling drugs. But what I will say was that in today's army, a man who had a useless arm and a leg, one leg that was cut off so badly, they'd be invalided out. They'd be considered too physical and fit to command troops. Hood had assumed that this is going to be defensive battle for the Confederates on December on July 28th. However, the history of warfare has shown that no battle is ever fought as intended. Prussian Field Marshal Helmut von Moltke, who made many plans and made many victories, said, quote, 
No battle plan survives intact after first contact with the enemy. Well, that's just what happened in this battle. Hood's orders gave discretion to Lee and to others to deviate from his defensive plan to attack if they thought an decided advantage could be gained. Lee's orders specified that he was to hold the Lick Skillet Road, implying that Hood authorized any action, including attack, to hold the road. Again, it's curious to me and probably to many other historians that uh, Hood never left his headquarters to, mo to monitor the battlefield. This is a guy in Virginia when he had his health was always in the front lines monitoring everything and that was part of his genius as a battlefield commander when he was healthy and had a smaller unit. In his campaign reports and post-war writings, Hood goes out of his way to praise Lee's quote, great skill and fidelity, energy and skill, and no word of criticism that Lee disobeyed orders during this battle or exercised poor judgment. Now, if the measure of a subordinate commander is that what he does pleases his superior officer, then Lee obviously measured up very well for Hood as a subordinate commander. But what is curious to me is at the end of the battle, with Lee still there and Stuart wounded, Hood sent for General Hardy, the third corps commander, the guy he didn't trust, he sent Hardy out to west of Atlanta to take over the battlefield. What does this say about what Hood probably really did think about Lee's management of the battlefield at the time? <coughs> because of the large Confederate losses in Officers Desert Church and the relentless pace of the campaign, few Confederate reports on the battle were filed, and no complete count of casualties can be made. Now, the best estimates are the Confederates lost over 3,000 men killed, wounded, and captured in this battle. Uh, out of about 11,000 engaged. Now that's heavy enough, but it was nowhere near the 7,000 that Howard estimated that the Confederates had lost in the attacks. But even at the lower figure, the losses were heavy enough. The three divisions fully engaged had about 10 brigades, about 1,000 men each, and their casualties approached 30% for the attacking infantry. The officer casualties were especially he heavy. One regiment, the 49th Tennessee, had six successive commanding officers shot down during this attack. And they were on their 7th regimental commander by the end of the day. Historian Gary Esselbarger estimates that the Union Army fired about one million shots, rifle shots, during this battle. And since the line of battle was about a mile long, I've done some fast math, and that's about 500 bullets fired for every yard of front of the attacks. To me, the miracle is that any Confederates survived this battle. Years later, Hood wrote in his memoirs, which by the way are among the most unreliable memoirs of any Civil War general, <laughs> And that's saying something. Uh, he, he only wrote like two paragraphs on Ezra Church. He wrote 20 pages on any other battle. He was you know, one page, less than one page on Ezra Church, writing, quote, the contest lasted till near sunset without any material advantage having been gained by either opponent. Our troops failed to dislodge the enemy from their position, and the Federals, likewise, failed to capture the position occupied by the Confederates. Of course, the essence is that Federals weren't trying to occupy or drive the Confederates back. If one studies what Hood wrote in his memoirs about this battle, this is probably the only battle he ever lost where he didn't blame his subordinates. He was notorious for doing that for Franklin, Nashville, and others, not for this one. He didn't even write of it as a defeat. It made it sound like a draw. And as it turned out, Lee could have accomplished his objective on the 28th just by pushing back those original Union prisoners and protecting the Lick Skillet Road. Full-scale assault was not needed to keep the road in Confederate control and allow Stuart's Corps to go behind them. 
In fact, one union general observed that the only possible impact that Lee could have had by attacking on the 28th was to warn Sherman and Howard that an attack was going to be coming on the 29th. Lee blamed the, the failure on the lack of resolve of some of his troops. In his battle report, he complained, quote, I am convinced that if all the troops had displayed equal spirit, we would have been successful, as the enemy's works were slight, and besides, they had scarcely got into position when we made the attack. Now remember, most of Lee's experience as an infantry officer was in 1862 in Virginia, where frontal attacks could succeed because, you know, the weapons weren't as good, the Union Army wasn't as savvy. By 1864, this just wasn't a policy. And to me, I observed that if the troops suffered 30% casualties in the attack, that sort of proves that they went in with plenty of resolve. Other reactions to the battle? Well, you can read a few of them. Uh, as a saddened General Hardy wrote, quote, no action of the campaign did so much to demoralize and dishearten the troops engaged in it. General Manigault was equally disgusted, quote, it was one of the many miserable exhibitions of generalship, this whole affair, which was characteristic of the officers of the Army of Tennessee. The defeat demoralized the men, too. The next day, a Confederate quartermaster confided in his diary, quote, there seems to be a general dissatisfaction among the men on account of the headlong way we were put into battle yesterday. And as Private Stevenson remembered years earlier, quote, this last battle swept away every trace of any lingering defense of Hood in our army or of confidence in him as a general. Many, especially the humbler and more ignorant of the men, became demoralized. They looked upon Hood with a sort of dread, as though he were almost a madman. Hmm. The final word comes from a story written up by Union General Jacob Cox after the, after the war. Supposedly, after the battle, a Union picket called across to his Confederate counterpart, Well, Johnny, how many of you are left? And came from the Confederate the sad reply, Oh, about enough left for another killing. If you want to read more on this, some of these, two of these books were in the raffle tonight. Amazingly enough, nobody wrote about the Battle of Ezra Church for 150 years. Then the last three years, there's been my article and two books on the battle. Uh, my essay in Confederate Generals in the Western Theater, Earl Hess's The Battle of Ezra Church, and Gary Esselbarger's Slaughter at the Chapel. So again, for further reading, I could recommend any one of these three. And with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention. Thank you. Uh, do we have time? Oh, yeah, we have time for questions there. So, anybody got questions? <laughs> Despite the overwhelming result, wasn't Sherman still unhappy with Howard? Uh, was Sherman unhappy with her? Sherman was perpetually unhappy with almost everything in life. <laughs> uh, one of the things I didn't mention during this was Sherman actually tried to do a, organize a counterattack. He had a division out to the west of the battlefield there wandering around, and he tried to order them to flank the Confederates from the west. Unfortunately, the division commander was sick that day. His subordinate was less competent. The orders got mixed up, and they, the division was sent in completely the opposite direction. So yeah, there was incompetence on the Union side as well, but they could afford a missed opportunity or two. But yeah, Sherman wanted, if Sherman had been able to bring that division around, he could have crushed half of Hood's army that day. Yes? Well, you said that um, Hooker resigned, but it was a, did you ever find any response from Claiborne, Cheatham, or Logan on being skipped over? Uh, Claiborne supposedly had a uh, 
diaries that were written up for during this campaign. He sent them to his fiancee in Alabama and they've been lost. That's like the holy grail of, of Civil War archives, you know, uh, the, you know, the Hunter or whatever it is, that TV show on Discovery. If anybody ever discovers those Claiborne diaries, um, they will make a million dollars. Cheatham um, was actually put in command of Stuart's Corps after Stuart got wounded. So he got a corps command, if not a promotion, to lieutenant general. Logan was very dissatisfied. He thought he deserved the command. His troops thought he deserved the command. Everybody except Sherman and Thomas thought he deserved the command. But don't feel too sorry about Logan. He, uh, after the war, becomes a United States senator, and he was the vice presidential nominee for the Republican Party in 1884. So he had a very founded the Grand Army of the Republic, a very distinguished post-war career. Okay, well, that's... Uh, well, Chris, uh, uh, it seems to me that Bud's lack of activity of being out on the field here is very reminiscent of his lack of activity at Spring Hill and very unlike his uh, being in with his troops in Virginia early in the war before he was wounded. So if it wasn't his wounds or some effect of his wounds, what else can you say? I... I try to maintain the talk, and I'll maintain right now, that it was certainly the effect of his wounds. Uh, not the fact that he was taking opium or his mind was dulled and anything like that, but he had to be helped into the saddle. He could only write with one hand. He couldn't use one arm and one leg. He had to be in great pain and, be and obviously be more tired than a normal, healthy general would be, because this was not the hood of, of 1862. That's why I got wounded so often, because he's always at the front line making those instant decisions that you need to do. And, what, and his idol was, was uh, Stonewall Jackson. That's how Jackson operated, too. Um, Lee, for the most part, was more of a headquarters operator. But remember, Robert E. Lee had trusted subordinates like Jackson and Longstreet. You could allow them to manage a battlefield because Lee knew they could, he could trust them. Hood had corps commanders who were either very new or that he didn't trust at all. He should have, knowing their lack of trust and experience, gone out and ran things more himself. But I think it's, I think it's clearly the ill health. Well, that's another question too, but that goes back to a bigger question. Should Hood have been made the army commander at all given his physical condition? I would say no. But that's not Hood's decision. That's President Davis' decisions. You know the famous thing about Harry Truman having something on his desk saying, the buck stops here? Well, the buck stopped at President Davis's desk. Yeah, but didn't Hood campaign for the promotion for the, for the appointment behind Johnson's back? Yes, Hood did campaign for the promotion. He was something of an intriguer himself. He hadn't been that in Virginia, but when he went out west, uh, Frankly, the, Ar the Army of Tennessee was already full of intriguers, and maybe he got infected by the general attitude out there or something. He very much intrigued for that command, but just because a, some officer intrigues for the command, if you're President Davis, you've got to say, yeah, he's making a good case, but i got to look at his physical condition and say, hey, maybe no. How about what, what, what impact oh. do you think Brad had? Being in, in Richmond at this point. Uh, I mean, uh, near Richmond, you mean? Yeah. Near Petersburg? No, well, Bragg was, uh, was... Oh, Bragg, I thought you said Grant, excuse oh, me. Bragg. Well, there's a whole subtext about Bragg basically ragging on Joe Johnston, who'd replaced him, and basically recommending Hood to Davis, in part, I think, to pay off some old scores. Yeah. That's a whole other story. That's a whole other talk, which... Maybe I'll give in the future. Who knows? <laughs> yes? Do you think that uh, Sherman took into account his dissatisfaction with uh, Howard's caution in stopping each flank and you know, make sure his shooting was not successively flanked? That that's exactly what caused this court to destroy the Chancellorsville and Gettysburg? I think Howard was haunted by Chancellorsville and Gettysburg. Rightly so, the memories of this. 
Plus, he knew. I mean, they knew each other at West Point. Everybody in the old army knew everybody else pretty much, but Howard especially knew Hood. And he knew something would happen. Now, uh, Sherman, if you'll see, countless times, just like most great commanders, he was always hounding his subordinates to be faster and to do more. George Patton in Sicily, same thing. The subordinates quite often resent that by saying, hey, you're pushing us too much, we're taking risks we don't have to and everything. But the army commander has to provide an impetus to the army. And Sherman, I think, wanted to provide that impetus more than perhaps the field commanders were willing to accommodate. Yes? So rewinding just a little bit further beyond the assumption of Hood, what's your opinion uh, about if Johnson had remained in command, whether Sherman would have taken Atlanta in time to affect the election? Oh boy, that's, uh, there's a couple parts to that question. First of all, I think Lincoln would have been re-elected in 64 whether Sherman took Atlanta or not. I made another talk about that. I, uh, there was no polling at the time, but I think the, the um, news of battlefield success in Atlanta, taking another Confederate city, I don't think that had that much of an impact on the vote. Uh, on the second part of your question, Sherman would have taken Atlanta practically, doesn't matter who the Confederate commander was. Um, if Sherman gets crosses the Chattahoochee River with 90,000 men, with the Confederate Army in the shape it was, there's probably no way that a smaller Confederate Army can continually protect Atlanta and still keep its supply lines open. It could have walled itself in like Vicksburg and still stood a siege, but there was no Confederate Army to relieve it, and the Con Atlanta would have fallen, the Confederate Army would have been captured probably sometime in September, early October. So, numbers tell. The Chicago Bears, if they could play 15 players <laughs> rather than 11, they could probably have won a few football games that year. Numbers, size matters, as I think some movie slogan had it. Yes? Did uh, Johnston have any uh, any, were there any uh, recorded recording of, did he have any plans that once Sherman got close to Atlanta for him to lash out? In other words, was, was Hood taking some of Johnston's ideas or was it simply on his own? And, and a second point, I do disagree with you because in Atlanta, yes, the Union had numbers, but the Confederates had the interior lines plus the fortifications so they could, you know, it, the ideal of attacking the flanks on the right and the left was correct. It's just the execution and the failure to when you did you know when you didn't have that opening to then beat yourself against the brick wall. Then that's you know that was not uh, that's why they lost. Okay, well, there's really two questions there. Right, two, well, well, the uh, first question, question is a, a point of disagreement. Okay, okay, well, the first uh, Johnston notoriously did not want to disclose his detailed plans, if he had any, to Davis. Earlier in the war, he had disclosed plans to Davis, got out, you know, had dinner, and then found everybody in the railroad station talking about his plans. <laughs> you know, it, it leaked out within 20 minutes, literally. So he didn't trust uh, Davis's entourage to keep secrets. More than that, arguably the Battle of Peachtree Creek was Johnston's plan, if any, to lash out. Um, there's some evidence that Hood took over Johnston's idea of attacking um, at Peachtree Creek because they figured just because of the terrain, Sherman would have to scatter his army on basically three separate fronts and he might be able to isolate one right, of them. There's the terrain, the river, the way the rivers course, and then they had the Chupas that would, would, at some point, as the Union is trying to reach that line and encircle, you, would, you could possibly pin here telling the Union attack us you know, on, when we're on defense and then at least maybe get even numbers and possibly some type of flank situation. But I agree with you that once the, the commander's on the scene, once there, there's clearly no opportunity, they should have been, had the discretion or been ordered, don't waste the men, you know, fall back and, and don't you know, waste the men. Well, they had the discretion to do so. They just chose, chose not, not to. to. Yeah. Um, 
at that point of the work, flank, you know, the great flank attacks of 61 and 62, they, by inferior Confederate numbers, just weren't working anymore. They could catch a brigade or two, but the Union Army had learned to react faster to flank attacks. They, the weaponry, the, the muskets could fire further so they could cover a gap in the lines much better. So the time to stop, the time for Johnston, if, if any time there was to stop Sherman, was at Cassville. Far to the north, oh, I, not anywhere near Atlanta. Um, what was the second part of the question again? Well, I, I was just I was uh, saying it was kind of a disagreement that you know that uh, you said that you know the numbers always tell, and based on the you know the terrain, you have a fortification of Atlanta, you got the interior lines. I'm not saying it meant that the Confederates would win, but that they had you know that that with the interior lines, the fortifications. That is the time, you know, at some point with the terrain to try and take that chance. Because, right, eventually you're going to get ground down or put into a siege. But the numbers, as the Union is trying to outflank on either side, you can get potentially parity on one flank and win. And when I say flank, mm -hmm. the end of the line, not necessarily flanking the opponent. Okay, we'll talk a little more about that afterwards. Okay, go ahead. Yes, my question, Bruce, is. Johnston was still in command before he got loaded. Why didn't he just retreat to the Chupades and defend Atlanta from there? Uh, well, of course he did. He, he had his army occupy the Chupades, among other things. But um, the Chupades, for those who don't know, were a special series of mini forts that were um, constructed north of the Chattahoochee River, which is about 15 miles from north of Atlanta. Why did he defend the Chattahoochee River line more than he did? Well, he did try and defend the line, but at that point of the war, terrain didn't stop Union troops very well. The thing that stops enemy, enemy soldiers is your own soldiers, not so much the terrain or the fortifications. They, Sherman was always famous for moving around fortifications. And as the Chattahoochee River, if you remember that, the first breach of the serious breach of the Chattahoochee River was some, when some Union soldiers took off all their clothes, but they had Spence, Spencer's or Henry's, I forget which, which you didn't have didn't have the water thing. It didn't affect being underwater for a while, so they swam across the river, came up naked, and started shooting the Confederates and blasted a bridgehead there. Uh, that's the reality of 1864. Not just superior numbers, but also superior weaponry that the Confederates simply did not have the copper or bronze, even if they could tr have tried to manufacture, they didn't have the raw resources to be able to do so. So, as I said, I think the, the, the key would have been further north. or some sort of scorched earth campaign to try and cut Sherman's supply lines and reduce the numbers that way. In 1864, just a second, in 1864, the only Union attack that was really turned back completely was the Union attack in the Trans-Mississippi, the Camden campaign, and the Red River campaign. That was basically not because the Union army was defeated in battle so much as the fact that the terrain, the area was so picked over that the Union army, could, they couldn't feed a big enough Union army to defeat the Confederate army. Logistics, I think, had to be, and a scorched earth campaign would have been maybe the only chance. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm pretty doubtful even for that, too. Yes? Just a couple short ones. One, what were those numbers, if we were talking about the numbers, Union versus Confederate in the Atlanta campaign? And two, did Logan not lead the army shortly after this battle or sometime after Atlanta was taken? Okay, well, the numbers varied, and they, they, both armies received reinforcements, so the numbers were varying all the time. But by the time Sherman nears Atlanta, he has at least a 3 to 2 superiority in total numbers, and 2 to 1 probably in infantry. Many of the Confederate numbers were Georgia militia, the old men and boys who were manning the trenches. That increases your numbers, but they can't, they're not going to be able to fight in the open and they're not very efficient in fighting to begin with, for understandable reasons. So uh, the quality of the Confederate army had declined, even beyond the, the, the sheer numbers. But the numbers were bad enough. Second point you wanted to make was? 
Logan. Oh, Logan. Logan, Logan basically left in the huff. But in 1865, in late 1864, when George Thomas was, in Grant's eyes, being too slow to get rid of Hood's army in front of Nashville, Grant sent Logan out to supersede Thomas. Logan went halfway there. He heard the reports of uh, Thomas winning the big victory at the Battle of Nashville, and he stopped. He said, no, no need for me to relieve him. He's won the biggest victory of the war. But did he leave the army shortly after those reports, or did he have I forget the exact timing, but um, he left the army after Atlanta was taken, which would be about another month, month later. But, again, in Grant's estimation, he was a great battlefield commander, so he didn't lose the confidence of being a battlefield commander for either Sherman or Grant. Um, other questions? Okay, again I thank you.